Well, first of all, I want to thank Nestor Pardo for his beautiful rendition of Gabriel Zobo. He is a student at La Sierra University and uh, a professional musician from Venezuela, where he was a member of the famous Il Sistema music program that's well known to us here in California because of its association with Gustavo Dudamel, who's now the music director of the Los Angeles Philharmonic. And he was accompanied by my wife, who could be a professional musician, but uh, has many other talents that she's explored. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Looking over the rather long list of your pastors over the years on the church website, I found many familiar names, but I do want to mention one, and that is Ken Curtis, one of the most memorable students in classes I taught on the La Sierra campus over the years. So I'm sure you've been greatly blessed by his uh, ministry here. I have somewhat reluctantly decided to preach on the story of the prodigal son, partly because the years have gone by in a hurry. And I remember someone saying, sooner or later, preach on the great themes, even if they throw you. So we'll see how that goes. Years ago, my wife and I were in New York City. I was going there for a conference, and our daughter, who was studying in France at the time, was also there. And before we said goodbye, and she went back to Paris, she gave us something to take to California with us and mail in with some other documents. It was an official letter from an important office in Paris authorizing her to receive significant financial support for her year of study there. Now in France, if you're familiar with the way they do things there, uh, the original document is crucial. Copies will not do. So we had the original. We brought it with us from New York City, but when we got to California and unpacked over the next couple of days, you know how that can be, um, we couldn't find it. Well, concern developed. We looked through all the suitcases. I looked through drawers that I might have put it in, opened files to see if it had been put there. I couldn't find it anywhere. We didn't know if we should call her and tell her about this dilemma or not, but uh, I remember we could hardly sleep, and then late one night, my wife said, I think it may be in the side pocket of a briefcase that is in my office in Loma Linda. Well, I hardly slept that night. I think I got up about 4.30 or 5 in the morning and drove the 20 miles between La Sierra and Loma Linda University. I'll never forget going into the building, I think I was the only one there at that time, opening the door to her office, walking across the office, there was the briefcase where she said it was, I reached into the side pocket and I found the letter. I can't forget the sense of relief that I had. We called friends that we had notified about this concerning loss. And I think we uh, let our daughter know everything was okay. We'd combine this letter with the other documents and uh, her financial support for the year was assured. 
Today we want to think about the most memorable story that Jesus ever told. It's the most profound, dramatic, and moving of all of Jesus' parables. In fact, I once had a professor who said if we had only one chapter in the Bible of the hundreds that are there spanning thousands of years and expressing a vast range of ideas, if we had only one chapter, this chapter, Luke 15, contains enough of the story of the gospel to give us the essential message. Now, what story is so dramatic, so compelling, and so profound that it contains the essence of the gospel in a single page? It's the story about a family. And family stories can be complicated. In fact, Russian author Leo Tolstoy begins his famous novel, Anna Karenina, with this statement, happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Well, this family had some unhappiness. Now, the story focuses on three central figures, two boys and a dad. And the central plot concerns the father's relation to each of these two sons. Now, as the popular name of the story indicates, the central object of attention is the younger son, the prodigal son. If you don't know what the word prodigal means, you and I have something in common. I missed that question on a quiz my first year in college on the life and teachings of Jesus. I thought it meant lost or something like that, but no, it really means, if you look it up in a dictionary, recklessly spendthrift. So the name goes to the young man because of what he did when he got to the far country. It focuses on the son's behavior there. But the story opens with two surprises. The first one is the son's request. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. Well, now, wait a minute. In light of the society in which Jesus was living, this was a dramatic request because property was divided when a person passed away. Was the son saying like, Dad, I need the money now. I can't wait until you die which is a way of suggesting, I wish you were dead now, so I had my inheritance. <laughs> okay. The second surprise is the father's response. So he divided his property between them. What? Why would he give this young man his share of the inheritance of the family's estate now in response to that kind of request? Well, there are possible answers. Was there something about the young man's behavior that suggested he was determined to leave home? Whether or not he got any support for what he was going to do because he was fed up with the way things were there and he was glad to get away. And perhaps the father realized that the only chance of mitigating total disaster was to give him the money and hope he would come to his senses while he still had enough to live on. Or... Did the father feel that the son had certain gifts that could only come to fulfillment if he had a measure of independence 
and another setting in which to pursue them. Not everybody thrives on a farm. <laughs> in fact, there was a time in this country when people left the farms in great numbers to pursue their destiny in other places. Or did the fathers feel that if things would start out okay and then take a turn for the worse when the son found that himself in the company of people who saw that he had something they wanted. He hadn't intended to do this, but when he got into the far country, the people who befriended him, those who realized he had money, money that they could use, he became susceptible to their overtures and began to be generous with them. And as often happens, people who are good friends, as long as their friends have money, vanished, and he was destitute. Nothing can be more damaging than friends who take unreasonable advantage of someone. Someone whose desire to please is the most obvious thing about them. At any rate, this is what happened. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed the pigs. Well, he had lost everything and he had hit rock bottom. In utter desperation, he became a servant and found himself in the most undesirable situation a Jewish person could find himself in, looking after swine, unclean animals in a foreign country, so hungry <laughs> that he would have been satisfied sharing what the pigs were eating. So you get the picture here. This is a a description of absolute desolation and desperation. Well, so far this is a tragically familiar story. We probably all know people who had impressive resources, wonderful personal qualities, intelligence, talent, engaging personalities, but who made serious mistakes and wound up in a desperate situation. I could share some family experiences with you, but I'll spare you the details. <laughs> then comes this text. Finally, he came to himself. You know, Jesus had a remarkable way of expressing things. The young man finally woke up. He began to think about who he was and the dramatic difference between who he was now and what he had been, from a son to a swine herd. Perhaps he said something like, I couldn't be in a worse situation, and the only way I can hope to improve things is to go back where I came from. Even though there's no chance I can go back to the place I had, the family I came from, that's out of the question. Things can't be as bad there for me as they are here. I have to go home. 
There's no other choice. And so the Bible says he set off and went to his father. (laughs) And on his way, understandably, he thought a lot about what he could say when he got there. Have you ever had to make an apology for something and you just sort of reworked it and reworked it and reworked it to be sure the words were lined up just the same way? I won't tell you how many times I've done that, but I I imagine all the way home he thought about what can I say to my father that might somehow persuade him to let me have a place in his household. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired servants. That's the most he could hope for. Then the focus of the story shifts in a remarkable way. It shifts from the prodigal son on his way home to the father. And what it says about the father is astonishing, surprising. The most unconventional, incredible incredible moment of this entire chapter, while he was still far off, His father saw him. What does that tell you about the father? Had he ever looked into the distance before? Probably constantly. His father saw him and was filled with compassion and ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Now, wait a minute. To appreciate just how dramatic this gesture was, we need to see this parable in relation to the other two parables that Jesus told on this occasion. Oftentimes, Jesus would tell parables in three. (laughs) The first two, the lost sheep, the lost coin. The shepherd and the woman who go to great lengths to recover what they've lost. In each case, what is lost is of great value. A sheep, even one sheep would have been costly in those days. It was a significant investment. And the coin that was lost may have been a part of this woman's dowry. I don't know exactly where she kept it, but I'm just guessing she may have sewn it in the clothes that she wore just to be sure it was safe. I don't think it was in a box in the ground. Uh, How would it have been lost there? And so maybe it was the kind of thing, have you ever traveled and checked to be sure you had your passport when you were overseas? several times a day, (laughs) or your cell phone nowadays, or your wallet. You just want to be sure. I I, want to have the essentials here. So she may have just sort of systematically, uh, every now and then, just checked to see if she had all 10 coins and then suddenly realized one is missing. Well, that interrupted everything. She searched for it until she found it. Now, I'm not sure what that involved, If she lived in a house with a dirt floor, it probably meant sweeping (laughs) and lighting lamps and things like that. But both of these figures, when they find what had been lost, it's a cause for celebration. They call their friends (laughs) and they get together and celebrate. Something of great value has been recovered. There's something about the joy of recovery that outshines any other experience. You know, if you've lost it and get it back, wow, it's really precious then. You never forget it. The father sees his son in the distance and runs to meet him. 
people, there is no way Jesus' listeners would have found this turn in the story believable. In fact, it may be the most shocking incident Jesus ever described, the most incredible story he ever told. A father who welcomes and embraces and celebrates a son who has trashed his share of the family's resources, tarnished the family's name, abandoned the family's principles, and presumes to think that he can somehow show up and wedge his way back into the family's estate and even work as a servant. Unbelievable. It makes no sense. It's not the way fathers treat a child who's an embarrassment, a child whose behavior has been a stain on the family's reputation. But here he is, violating convention, exploding all expectations in the culture in which this story takes place. The inferior always is the one who approaches the superior, not the other way around. But in this story, we see the father not just going to meet the son, but running to embrace him and welcome him home. You can't turn your back on your family's values. Disgrace your family's reputation. Ignore everything your family tried to teach you and think you're still part of the family. I remember hearing about some young culture, some young people from a certain culture whose brother had done something that disgraced the family. So they went through the family album and cut his picture out of every photograph where it appeared. As if to say, since he's no longer part of the family, we're not going to keep reminders that he once was. And that would make sense. But if there's one thing that makes no sense in this entire chapter, it's the father's willingness. In fact, not just his willingness, but his eagerness to welcome this wayward son back into the family, to put a robe on his shoulders, sandals on his feet, gives you an idea of the way he looked what he was wearing or wasn't wearing, and then most significantly, a ring on his finger. It would have been the signet ring of the family to say, you are fully restored to us. We're so glad you're here. Son, welcome home. I've been dreaming of this day ever since you left. It's one of the happiest moments of my life. I wasn't sure it would ever happen, but it has. We're going to have a party to celebrate this unforgettable occasion. Then the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That part of the apology ended because the father interrupted him and said to one of his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, get the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. End of story. Not yet. What happened next takes us back to the beginning of these parables in Luke 15 to the people who criticized Jesus for associating with the kind of people he was with, tax collectors, sinners, 
social outcast. What is Jesus, this popular teacher, doing with this kind of associate? And he not only spent time with them, he ate with them, as if to say he fully accepted their fellowship. He affirmed their value as human beings. What happened then? His elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on, and the slave replied, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he got him back safe and sound. Did the older brother rush in to greet his uh, younger sibling? No. He refused to go in. What happened next? Does the father say, well, that's just his problem. Let's go ahead and celebrate. No, the father came out to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years, I have been working like a slave for you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this, notice the language, this son of yours came back who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours <laughs> was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and has been found. This exchange between the father and the older son exposes the tragic contrast between their perceptions of their relationship with each other. When we look at the younger brother's description of what he was willing to do, we get a striking parallel to the older brother's account of what he had always been doing. What's that? Work as a slave. The younger son hoped to be treated like a servant from then on, if he was lucky. And ironically, this is exactly how the older brother had been viewing himself. It looks like for his whole life, he thought of himself as a servant, maybe even a slave, not really as a son. The father's answer to this pathetic, self-pitying account shows how different his perception was of his older son. He said, everything I have is yours and you have been my constant companion. I am always with you. But we had to celebrate this brother of yours was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. The tragedy of the younger son was leaving home and becoming desperate before he realized what a wonderful home and a wonderful fa father he had. The tragedy of the older son was never leaving home and never realizing what it meant to be at home, thinking of himself all those years as a servant, a slave just doing what he was told, never appreciating the privilege that was his as a son. The revelation of the older son's true feelings takes us back to the setting of the story. The criticism Jesus received for accepting people 
who were undeserving of his favor, people who were social outcasts and deserved to be. They had no place in respectable society. Unlike the religious leaders of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees, who were highly thought of, or at least highly thought of themselves, Unfortunately, these people misunderstood the basis of their relationship to God. It's not our behavior that gives us value and significance. It's God's love for us. Yes, a life of security and accomplishment is better than life in the far country. Fulfilling our potential is preferable to wasting our resources, no question about it, but the ultimate reward is the joy of the Father's companionship. Everything he has, he shares with us. And best of all, we are always with him. It's sad that some have to find themselves desolate and despairing in a far country before they finally value the security of home and the warmth of family. In some ways, it's even sadder that others never leave home but never feel at home. The father's love for the prodigal could have awakened the brother's appreciation for the incalculable gift of the father's love for him and the privilege that was his to have enjoyed that love continuously. Instead, he thought of himself as a servant working for his security. I'm not sure he ever really felt he was part of the family. Referred to his long lost brother, not as my brother, but as your son. As if to say he's your relative, not mine. And I don't think he deserves the way you're treating him. The story's unfinished. We don't know what or if the older brother said anything in reply to the father. But we can know what our response to this unforgettable description of God's astonishing generosity, incalculable affection, and amazing grace. People sometimes reject God's love, but they can never stop God from loving them. Let's be glad if we made our way home from the far country. There may be people here today for whom that describes their experience. Let's be glad if we never found ourselves in the far country. <laughs> far lives have always been respectable, conventionally speaking. But most of all, let's rejoice that we are all welcome in God's family. God shares everything he has with us and promises us that we can always be with him. Let's bow our heads, shall we? Father, we thank you for the assurance of your undying love for us and for the beautiful portrayal that Jesus gives of it. Help us to live every life in gratitude for that great gift, for we ask it in Jesus' name.